but that whatever is going on there, it's given us this sense that something was happening, mm -hmm. you know, even post Good Friday and maybe uh, pre-Easter, at least part of Easter that we know, which is the empty tomb, that something's going on there. And yeah. it's, it's a difficult passage, I'm not going to lie, but I think that's mm -hmm. one of the unique contributions is that something happened when Jesus rose from the dead that wasn't as obvious that we that we read about at the end of the gospels the obvious thing of meaning he physically appeared and and met with the disciples there's something actually else going on in the, in a world unseen to us I, so peter makes a contribution in there that that's really unique Dr. Edwards, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds. It is a pleasure to have you. Well, Kevin, really is good to be with you, and thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate yeah. it. Sure thing. I was uh, I was glad that I had made acquaintance with Nijay Gupta, a uh, a friend of yours, because I was hunting for somebody to help us with First Peter, and when I saw him post a picture of you on Facebook, and he had mentioned your uh, your work on First Peter, I thought, oh man, okay, this is the guy. Mm -hmm. I want to get to get to Dr. Edwards uh, before we started recording. Um, apparently, has this great nickname. I don't know uh, <laughs> if you want to talk about <laughs> Dr. Sure. Dre and how that works for you. Well, you know, my initials are DRE, and my middle name is Robert Dennis Robert Edwards, and uh, and I'm a reverend and I'm a doctor. So Rev. Dr. Dre has been my handle for several years now. Wow. <laughs> I'd see, like I. I like how that that distinguishes that differentiates you from from someone else who might also go by Dr. Dre, by Dr. Reverend Dre, Dr. Exactly. Dre. Exactly. That, <laughs> that that brings a real pious ring to it. I like that. <laughs> Thanks. And Nijay, Nijay, I got to hire him as my publicist or something. He's been he's been saying some really nice things about my written work, and and uh, he keeps encouraging me. So I'm glad that uh, he's part of this connection. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well, we'll be sure to we'll be sure to tag him in uh, it, it when this goes out, and may, I'll let y'all work out the details uh, of how exactly you're going to hire. <laughs> Maybe you've got a budget there at North Park to, uh, <laughs> uh, no, to no. hire him for that. It'll it'll just have to be a a, a lunch every now and then or something. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll buy him breakfast at uh, at SBL. Yeah. Well, Dr. Edwards. Um, I, I'm excited to meet you and, uh, and, yeah, and really looking course. forward to our conversation on First Peter. To help us get to know you a little bit, though, can mm -hmm. you tell us you know, how long have you been teaching? What got you into teaching? Sure. Where do you teach? And, and eventually sort of what piqued your interest in First Peter? Yeah. Sure, I'm happy to share that. I teach at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. I'm in my third year there, um, associate professor of New Testament. But I've been teaching since about 2000, so for about 21 years now. But I, I finished my doctoral studies at the Catholic University of America. I studied largely under the late Joseph Fitzmaier, a New Testament giant, mm -hmm. and um, uh, finished in 03, I think it was. Yeah, so, so for about, um, but I started teaching before I was done. Anyway, I taught mostly adjunct, though, because I had been a pastor and uh, at that time was serving a church in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and then eventually I became a pastor in Minnesota, 
So I taught at Bethel Theological Seminary for a while, and then uh, I moved a short time at Northern Seminary and now at North Park. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've been teaching for a long time, teaching New Testament, biblical Greek, Greek exegesis, courses like that. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Oh, oh, now you mentioned first Peter, my interest, you know, yeah. I did my dissertation work in James. And when I was um, uh, getting into James, this is a while ago now, I, that, that language of the diaspora and um, mm -hmm. that uh, comes up at the beginning of James is also in first Peter. And it's and those are the two main places. It shows up one other time in the Gospel of John, but but there's debate over how literally we should understand the term in James and also in First Peter. So mm -hmm. I wound up paying attention to both of those of those those books when I was doing my dissertation work, and um, and also had done some work in it. You know, way back in seminary days, our exegesis class spent time in First Peter. So I'd always been intrigued with First Peter. Yeah. Had preached in First Peter as a pastor. And then when I was asked to do the commentary for the Story of God Bible commentary series, I was like, oh, this is exciting. I get to go into that book that I had already already had been interested in and <laughs> had been reading alongside uh, James. So that's kind of where my interest started way back. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, you, it's funny that you mentioned how you did you know, exegetical work in, in First Peter back in seminary. The, um, you know, I went to a small seminary affiliated with my church tradition in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and one of our New Testament professors always taught the advanced Greek exegesis class in First Peter. Oh wow! And so, like that that's a um, that's a great crash course into um, in, into Greek and exegesis and just all the different things that you can get into I with agree. that. Yeah, I agree, and I think the next time I teach teach Greek exegesis, I'm going to use uh, First Peter, because for that very reason, I have been, I've been, you know, working in different books for the class, and, uh, but, but since I'm going to be, continue to do some scholarly work in First Peter, I thought, oh, it might be fun to have my class go along with me yeah. in doing some translation and dealing with grammar issues and so forth, so oh, I'm yeah. glad you got exposed to it. I mean, it is rich, and, uh, and it's good Greek, which um, mm -hmm. prompts some people to wonder if Peter wrote it or not. I mean, that, that comes up sometimes, too, but okay. it is a good, it's a good book to get into. Sure. If you uh, if you don't mind, at some point later, if when it's relevant, mm -hmm. let's uh, let's dig into uh, why maybe some people yeah uh, think yeah. or or uh, actually, would you mind being able to do that now? I'd, oh yeah, let's we, let's we can start with now. There. Yeah, we'll talk. We can talk a lot about First Peter, but I think authorship is one of those things that comes up, you know, almost with every New Testament book. Sure. You know, we, yeah. especially ones that don't have a name on them, right? Mm -hmm. But this one does, and uh, and so does you know Second Peter. But th both of those books have gotten a lot of um, scholarly interest. Uh, sticking to First Peter for now, part one of the issues is that use of Greek. I mean, there's a heavy reliance on the Septuagint, um, a lot of quotes from the uh, Old Testament, and then there's um, just the uh, the styling, the uh, the relative sophistication of yeah. of the Greek. That some have said, "Hey, that's not a Galilean fisherman." you know, who, who sure. wrote this. So yeah. that's been one of the knocks. Um, as I listen to and read, but also get a chance to listen to some scholars, many of them, um, there, there's a division still, but I would sure. say there's a good number that defend Peter as an author. I think one, one creative solution has come from Gene Green. He has a book called Vox Petri, mm -hmm. Voice of Peter. And his argument is that then we, we might think of a Petrine circle. We might think of uh, of people connected to Peter 
And for first Peter, certainly he could have been, you know, alive when it was done, but his voice carries on even into second Peter. Um, so I would say there's this good argument that Peter wrote the book. I mean, it's not a slam dunk, sure. but I would say there's stronger argument for Peter having written it than not. Yeah. Fascinating that you mentioned this book by Gene Green, because at the time of recording, the hmm. last episode that I released in the series is with yeah. this professor that I was mentioning. His name ah. is Dr. Alan Black, just recently retired from Harding School of Theology in okay. Memphis. He, he, uh, he and I did our episode on the Gospel of Mark. Mm. And he mentions this book by Gene Green. Yes. yes so yes. just kind of fascinating that. Oh, I'm glad for the connection. It, it'll be neat to kind of bookend this series, more yeah. or less, with yeah. you know, a mention of this book, Vox Petri, mm -hmm. there in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And then whenever this episode um, releases, mm -hmm. at probably sometime early 2022. Okay. It'll be, um, yeah, it'll get a shout out again. I, yeah, maybe this yeah. is a sign from the Lord that I need to pick up this book. And take yeah, a look at and, and, and get Gene Green if you can. Um, it's a big book, though. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. but he does some really I mean, it's it's a really deep um, but thoughtful engagement with with the, the legacy of Peter. I mean, the, the history of Peter that we know from the apostles, the historic Peter. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and how he's presented in the apostles. I mean, and, and the uh, Gospels, I mean. And then also his the, the the legacy of the writings that bear his name. So yeah, that's it's quite interesting. Yeah. So uh, to recap, for the sake of the audience uh, who might not be as familiar, or, or mm -hmm. who might who might just kind of be reeling for a second, to think, well, what do you mean? Yeah. There's there's debate, right? That's what my yeah. Bible says, right? This right. is this right. is Peter. Uh, yeah. One you know one reason that a lot of folks are a lot of uh, New Testament scholars have had some concerns with you know, readily affirming Peter's authorship of this book is because mm -hmm. as a Galilean fisherman mm -hmm. to these particular scholars, it seems unlikely that somebody like Peter, a Galilean fisherman, could write with the degree of sophistication that mm -hmm. we see in, in the letter of 1 Peter, not only with the quality of Greek, but also just the, the, the interpretive and rhetorical sophistication and using yeah. quotes from quotes from the old testament and, and crafting right. an argument and things like that is that is that a fair succinct summary of the issues that a lot of scholars have that is that's one of the main ones i would say you know another is related to the uh, so-called household codes where peter addresses enslaved people and women in chapter two going into chapter three which is something we see in colossians and ephesians <laughs> And, and their scholarly argument over those two books having Fine, been yeah. written, you know, later than the life of P, uh, life of Paul. Mm -hmm. And and since they were martyred around the same time, it, it, there's an argument that Peter could have, you know, first Peter was written later also, you know, so those kinds of scholarly discussions, they, I, I, I talk to uh, my students about it. it's not the kind of stuff we talk about in church very much. Yeah. But, um, but it, but they are academic arguments, because we don't, we can't prove it. And you're right, their names are on the book. But because there have been ancient practices of people putting names of people on books that right. they didn't write, some have argued, well, maybe that happened with New Testament books mm -hmm. as well, even though we can't uh, prove that. I would say the argument, though, is is strong that Peter wrote. And, and, and as far as the grammar and such, I'll just say briefly, um, I'm forgetting the scholar's name right now, but there's an argument that, you know, those the tradespeople would have actually been pretty good at Koine Greek because they had to be. 
So you, if, so people like fishermen would have been some of the would have been good at Koine Greek, even though Peter was a Semite and and would have functioned in Aramaic. He could have functioned very well in Greek because he had to do business um, using Greek. So there's yeah. that the you know uh, at least a theory that helps to counter yeah. his it's uh, historically use. plausible that right exactly. tradesmen tradesmen of Peter's time would have been at least bilingual. Yeah, right, exactly, and pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, one thing that I've that I find particularly um, helpful in, in this discussion is some of the work by Randy Richards or his, mm. you, you normally find his publication name E. Randolph Richards, does a lot of work with the uh, secretaries in the letters of Paul. And uh, I've, I've thought for a while now that it would make sense at least there in first Peter chapter five, verse 12, mm -hmm. when he says that through, through Sylvanus, I have written this letter. Right. I, I know some people will argue that that, is Peter's way of saying, you know, hey, you know, that here, here is the guy. Here, here's basically my Tertius, you know, yeah. tip of the hat to Romans sixteen exactly. twenty two. Exactly. Yeah. And I, for me, find that argument compelling. You, you may not find it as compelling, but I, I think it at least makes sense to me. Well, I think that goes back to Dr. Gene Green's book on the on the Vox Petri and the Petrine Circle. That let's say that circle includes the people who actually are doing the writing while Peter's doing the thinking and mm -hmm. the presentation and the, you know, and initiating the discussion. I honestly don't know how those dynamics worked. I mean, the old way when we were kids, you know, or at least me, I'm old now, you had this sense of some writer in a trance getting, you know, Lord whispering in his ear and, and then moving his hand to write or something, you know, magical. But the idea of the apostles talking their ideas out and, and, and saying what they want to say and having somebody else write it down with their style I think that's a very plausible and realistic scenario. So, yes, I think that the idea of a scribe or a secretary or the fancy term amanuensis, I think there are, it's, that's a, a real good possibility with First Peter as well as, as you mentioned, um, Pauline writings. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't expecting to get into all that, but I, I, yeah. I love that kind of stuff. It's fascinating. Okay, and I, I'm, I think that we were able to present it in a way that was, um, that was fairly easy to follow, especially for folks who have been kind enough to kind of walk through this uh, podcast series for yeah. a while. Very I good. mentioned these issues. I had this kind of conversation, I think, with uh, Lynn Kohick on Ephesians. Oh, excellent. And um, I think maybe a couple of other folks that I've, I've talked to about some different things. And so okay. anyway, I, good. I, I'm glad we we're able to dig into this. Mm -hmm. um, we've mentioned... We've mentioned First Peter. We're, we're, we've kind of touched on some of these technical issues with First Peter. Help us understand what is the literary type of mm -hmm. First Peter, and and mm -hmm. based on that, yeah. what does that tell us about how his how the original audience would right. have understood Peter? It, how does that help us understand maybe what what the yeah. letter is trying to do? Or, or I say letter, maybe I'm jumping the gun there. Well, I mean, I'm glad that you said no. I think it's pretty clear it's a letter, and it fits the the stereotypical pattern of a letter that we know from the Greco-Roman world, there's an opening, there's a, you know, the greeting, there's a Thanksgiving. Um, and then at the end, we see the, uh, the wrap up and the uh, salutations, um, very clear structure, of, uh, unlike say Hebrews or first John, where yeah. we, we package them like they're letters, we stick them in that part of the Bible, and mm -hmm. we, we refer to them as letters, but there's very little about them 
especially First John that has a literary tone. I kind of laugh at First John because he launches in with what was from the beginning and then he ends with <laughs> with this mic drop, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Boom. Like what <laughs> you know? And so so it's not so first Peter's not nearly that stark, right? Right. He, yeah. He opens something up and it really is a letter. But what letters tell us is that there's a community there, right? Mm -hmm. And the community is dealing with something. And I I sometimes in my classes, we want to make that really clear to students is that we've got communication happening. It's not just some edict that dropped out the sky, but these, but there's real people here um, hearing from their apostle. And um, so, so when somebody is writing the letter, Paul, Peter, maybe John, they are uh, addressing something that's alive in the, in the congregation, you know, whether it's um, some kind of controversy, like, like the division of first Corinthians and you got Paul saying, look, I hear there's divisions among you and he wants to, to he help them heal. Or there's Peter dealing with um, a variety of issues that these believers are facing. You mentioned that it's a letter. And I think um, in addition to acknowledging it's a letter, I want to acknowledge that it's a letter sent to multiple Christians, right? Mm -hmm. They're scattered around this um, area of what would be modern day Turkey. So he names these provinces because there's pockets of believers around there that he's writing. So you can think of it almost like an encyclical that it's meant to be read and shared in, among yeah. these Christians in, in uh, Turkey. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I, one thing that I've really enjoyed you know, as I read about letter collections, um, it, whether it's letter collections of you know new testament authors or just sort of general greco-roman letter collections um it it seems it's it seems likely that as these congregations in these different cities would have read this chances are they might have been making copies of that letter to have for their for themselves that's right this, this is a right. this is a word from peter the apostle the guy who walked with jesus that's right I mean, he he was there for so much of it you know, we yes. need to hang on to this. Is yeah, that plausible historically? Oh, very much so. Um, our friend uh, Craig Evans, who's done a lot of work in the uh, in New Testament manuscripts, and guys done a lot of work in everything. <laughs> he has. He has. He's been around for a while. And he's done some awesome work. Yeah. But he, but he has. He does address the idea of manuscripts because we used to think of it as a continuous line, like when the thing is about to die out, then you write a copy, and then, right, yeah. then it, and so we think of. But, you know, really, the, the original letter could have been around for quite a while, even as the copies are being made. So mm -hmm. it's not we don't have to think in terms of these discrete time periods, but overlapping time periods. So it's very much the case that letters got copied that way and uh, and then got shared around the uh, what was then the empire. Yeah. 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 So as a letter being passed around to these different uh, different cities in uh, in modern country of Turkey. Right. When they would have gotten this letter, what next? How would they have read this? What would what would have been the expectation for them to do after yeah. getting this letter and reading it to everybody there oh, in, that's in a, the house? That's a great pastoral question because I think that gets at the whole point of the letters. They're really pastoral communications mm -hmm. in many ways, right? So you have the letter bearer coming and somebody designated to read it, probably the person who carried it. In this case, Sylvanus, you know, maybe or or, or whomever mm -hmm. is bringing this letter. Um, you've got um, um, well, the letter carrier is going to be reading this letter. That 
the reason why I think this is such an important area that I hadn't actually thought about for until recent years is how much that letter carrier reader um, is expected in person to help to communicate what's going on. Our friend Scott McKnight has written on this with relation to um, to Phoebe in, yeah. in, in Romans, that as she's reading the letter, she would know what Paul wants to get across. So you can, in inflection and emphasis, and even in your eye contact, help to help the community, the, the community understand what the author is trying to say. But so what happens is the letter gets read, probably gets read all at one time, right? And people are, are hearing and being encouraged, being challenged, and all the uh, emotions that go with it. Uh, to be what they're supposed to be. And in this case, I think Peter is really offering a word of uh, encouragement because the community seems to be suffering yeah. and they seem to be facing uh, real serious challenges um, because of their faith. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Phoebe there in Romans chapter 16. I, I, I think it's, I can't remember if he and I mentioned this, but I, I interviewed Rafael Rodriguez on, on Romans. Um, Rafael and I have run into each other a couple of times. There's a, there's a, a small conference called the Stone Campbell Journal Conference that uh, often meets at uh, Johnson University there in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, okay. And um, more or less denominationally affiliated with our, uh, with the big umbrella that our church traditions came from. And um, he, he was very gracious to let me interview him on Romans. And I, I can't remember if we mentioned this, but, but it is, an, I, I, I think it is at least his, historically sensible. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense for somebody like Phoebe there who gets introduced kind of out of nowhere, right? Right, right. Paul ramps up this great discussion about strong in the week after talking to all about all this great stuff about transformation and everything else. And then it gets to, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe. Who's a diaconos, right? You know, she's yeah. a she's a servant, a minister, a deacon. However, right, how, right. however you parse that out, she obviously has a pretty important role to play here. And historically, it makes sense for her to be the one to present this. And I like how you gave gave little details there too. Like she she would have inflection and nuance and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And so somebody's bringing this letter, like how Phoebe would have brought Romans. Somebody right. is bringing this letter around. Right. through these churches in, in Turkey here in, uh, for First right. Peter. Exactly. Getting into the actual letter itself, mm -hmm. what are some of the major emphases that we see here? Yeah. I think you mentioned persecution. Yeah. I, I used, Do you want yes, to start there? Yes. I use the word suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hesitate a little bit to say persecution because it's hard to know like how uh, uniform and consistent sure. the, the oppression was. Yeah. Um, and some would argue that it's not yet a state-sponsored uh, um, um, oppression, oppression of Christians okay. uh, or suppression. We know that's going to happen because we have records of uh, in the early second century with that conversation between uh, Pliny and Trajan. They have letters yeah. going back and forth, and it's in a, a geographical this, area. That's this very area. That, yep. this, this very area. Yeah, Galatia, mm -hmm. this very area. So we know it's coming. So what we think is happening is the sort of the forerunner to that real hot um, oppression is the marginalization that's happening. So I call it suffering because Peter doesn't, uh, he's not explicit about um, 
so much physical pain or even being arrested. He does use the word make your defense, but it's not clear if it's, but, but the way he describes the oppression are things like slander and um, uh, kind of that blasphemy, the way that they kind of talk about you and marginalize you. So, there, so the suffering might not yet be um, random acts of violence, mm. but it does include a way that's shutting out people, Christian people, from the mainstream of society. They're taking abuse, is the way Peter puts it. And abuse is often verbal. Yeah. So that's one of the themes. And in fact, I'll, I'll say what, what real clearly, you will see it at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning in chapter one, he says, you're going through these fiery ordeals. He doesn't yeah. spell them out, but he calls them fiery trials. And then at the end in chapter, close to the end, chapter four, he talks about suffering, being called a Christian, which we think was an insult. But he says, look, don't take any shame in that. You know, you're honored before God, even though you're being dishonored in the, uh, in the uh, society. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned particularly um, some of the ways in which Christians could be shut out of kind of mainstream society. What are some, help us flesh that out a little bit, if you don't mind. What are some, yeah. what are some details? What are some specific ways that Christians mm -hmm. could have been shut out? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. There's, um, you know, there's, uh, in chapter four, he, he says, um, you yeah, and if, and if we need to pull out Bibles and, and take a look at this, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, perfectly I'm, I'm, fine with reading the Bible on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. well, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a reference to something that uh, is, maybe it's not shut out in an obvious sense, but he says in verse three of chapter four, for you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. This is the NIV uh, mm -hmm. translation, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. One aspect is to say um, some of those words, of course, are really horrible kind of things when you think about, you know, just how, how people should act. But if you think about some of those like the general carousing kind of notion or or even drunkenness that there were these social gatherings uh, a bacchanal if you will named for bacchus right yeah. they had these parties that if you are a gentile and you have to make your way in society right and maybe we think of it like now a competitive society is built on the relations that you make the connection mm -hmm. the social connections you make so if you're going to these parties and making social connections but now you as a christian you're like, oh my goodness, I can't participate in that. So you don't go to those parties. Well, now you've lost social connection. So you're, you're not able to uh, get the, um, the deal that you need to get made, or you're not able to buy that plot of land that you thought you were going to buy. You're going you're gonna to have some, some difficulty maneuvering there and not just the difficulty maneuvering, but now they heap abuse on you. They're going to shame you for um for being a christian so that marginalization could be business that marginalization could be you know how you live who you're going to be dealing with in the marketplace i mean all those things conspire right to put you in a a a, a different place out of mainstream society yeah yeah some scary stuff too yeah and, yeah. and hence you know perhaps maybe a, a good segue into a, another theme of um that we see in first peter to, is there anything in first peter where he uh, urges them to uh, to remain united or you know something along those lines against yeah. these kinds of uh, abuses 
Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I actually even wrote as a thought, um, I phrased it this way for myself as I th thought, thought about these themes in there. I called it community solidarity, that there's mm -hmm. this, that, that Peter picks up on the imagery of the way God's people are described in the Old Testament, Jewish people. And he uses the, that imagery, like in chapter two, that you are this royal priesthood, this holy nation. You're these, you're God's special people. He's, he's, he's giving them an alternate identity that's consistent with the, the identity of God's people in the Old Testament. But, but if there are Gentile converts here, he's, he's just now, you know, grafted them in <laughs> to the, to the uh, people of God and, and, and giving them an identity when they were losing an identity in their society and then creating community solidarity because he uses the words of loving each other, of being sympathetic to one another. I mean, there's a lot of community building kind of language that goes through here. Um, so yes, the way to fight if you will, fight the tensions from the broader society is to build strong relationship uh, with each other. Um, I think that's a message that comes through. I think there's a public witness message that comes through also in chapter yeah. three. He says, look, you know, you have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but you do it with respect. Mm -hmm. um, he also talks about the public witness in terms of not undermining even the um, Roman authorities by looking suspect, you know, so you behave yourself, if you will, yeah. um, you honor the emperor, you know, give respect to these people, you love God, you love the sisters and brothers, you got a community of love, but you give respect and honor to the secular rulers. He's not blessing them and saying they're all doing the right thing. Sure. He's yeah. trying to say to your folks, this is how you um, have a safe kind of lower profile, if you will, because since you're taking the abuse, one of the things that, and this has happened to all marginalized people in every society, marginalized people wind up being very careful with the authorities because they know the authorities can give them grief and make their life even more complicated. Mm -hmm. So they tend to be rather deferential to the people who are in authority so as not to make their lives more complicated. Yeah. I think that message comes through as well. Yeah, and, and uh, understood and similar conversations that I've had with other folks um, you know, about marginalized people, they have indicated similar things. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly how the early Christians would have found themselves. That's right. I, I recognize that it is, it is still, especially where I have lived. Okay. So I've lived, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, went to a private Christian university in Arkansas, went to seminary in Memphis, Tennessee, and then lived in central Kentucky and now live in Corpus Christi, Texas. All right. Um, wow. Those are all places that still have a predominant cultural acceptance of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so it, it has easy for me to be, be a Christian. I say easy, okay, here are the air quotes around that, but it's yeah, yeah. easy for me to be a Christian in places like that. That's where I tell somebody, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor at a church or you know, I'm, I'm working on a doctorate in biblical studies you know, before I graduated last year. Generally speaking, people, they were either neutral or they respected that. Mm. And I have not lived anywhere where people immediately think, whoa, are you like you some kind of like snake oil salesman or something like that? <laughs> and so it's, it, in some ways, it's, it's hard for me to understand yeah. this text as it is written to people who right. find themselves on the outside. Yeah, and I, I, I hear that, I, you know, and, and I think in a couple of ways, there's one, there's the possibility that Christianity, especially in light of our politicized culture, that 
whatever a genuine faith in Jesus ought to look like, and I have opinions about that, but could actually start to feel and appear to be uh, unaccepted by the larger society. And I think some would argue that's happening already. Yeah. So, so what Peter has to say, you know, is very real or becoming even uh, more real for us. I would say also though, that people who have been marginalized for other reasons. Also, I mean, because of race or gender or, yeah. or, um, or immigration status, that, that, that there's, um, that Peter is giving us uh, a message that those marginalized people are exemplars for us of how we can live our faith when our faith comes into question. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I say that because not only is he writing to this large community, he zeroes in on enslaved people in chapter two and on women. So we're talking about the marginal of the marginalized, right? right? Yeah. So within the community, enslaved people are really have no, no rights. And then women have limited rights, but he, he, he addresses them both, both groups. And even though one might say that he's not giving them like a real, you know, manifesto for, uh, for uh, liberation. He is giving them some words that when they follow the way of Jesus to keep themselves safe in their society and keep themselves, um, you know, from taking more abuse, they actually uh, show the way of Christ to a greater extent or in a better way than people who are in the mainstream of society. Mm -hmm. In other words, marginalized people of faith are the best exemplar exemplars of the faith. Yeah, because that's how that's that's how Christ found himself in the world. Exactly, exactly, yeah. and that's that's the what that's the what Peter was saying too, because that's the way Jesus was. He'll say yeah. this is particularly in chapter two, toward the end of chapter two, he says, because when you're this way, that's the way Jesus was, who suffered, he took abuse, and he didn't retaliate. Yeah. So it's not a way of saying, look, just take every hit that comes to you in society and, you know, just grin and bear it. He's saying, no, there's a way of being like Christ that when these things do come, the way you respond is a witness of what Christ is like. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we went. To, I'm glad we're going this route okay. because this is something that I have been wrestling with for. Man, I can't remember when I can't remember. I was first made aware of this, but let's say two, three, four years ago, sometime around there, I was, I, I was finally made aware that, all right, if I, if I am, and, you know, culturally, ethnically, you know, racially, if I'm a member of what we tend to call majority culture, mm -hmm. um, I, I am, I'm prompted to, or maybe I'm led to, or maybe I experience leads me to uh, often see things differently than how, you know, others might see things. I'm a, you know, sure. white male, Christian, um, mm -hmm. you know, my wife, a white female, Christian would see things differently. You know, right. friends that I've interviewed on the podcast here, um, African-American male, Caribbean male. Mm -hmm. So those two guys have experienced race in the U.S. Mm -hmm. very differently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing that I've found is that when I look at, say, what Jesus was doing, his situation is kind of different from mine. I am, I, I find myself in ethnic and cultural majority. Mm -hmm. Jesus found himself where he was in Judean Galilee, sure, ethnic majority, right? Yeah, majority of folks there would be Jewish. 
but definitely in terms of power structures in the minority or in the marginalized in the less powerful sure mm-hmm. and then these folks that we see here peter addressing they're on the minority in the minority in terms That's of right. you know right. religion perhaps ethnicity if if they have some jewish uh, jewish background mm-hmm. um in terms of power structures and so there's all these little shades here and there that I'm be gradually becoming sensitive to, to, to read through this and think, okay, yeah. all right, Lord, lead me to how I can faithfully apply and live out what you've mentioned here yeah. in, in ways that I see uh, operating here in scripture. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate your sensitivity there because I feel, I mean, scholars refer to what you just described as social location, that it's our social location that... Um, we actually bring to, well, to everything, including our reading of the Bible. Yeah. And, and, and I know that for some people, it's hard to, hard to think that when you say, look, everybody should just come to the same conclusions or ask the same questions, but we really don't. I mean, so when I'm reading this and I'm reading a passage in First Peter addressed to you know, household slaves, I can't help but to think of the legacy of my own people in this country, right? Sure. So, so I don't read that from a power position. I'm reading that from the position of folks that are that have been marginalized. So, so for example, I think of um, you know you said you might look at things differently or look at situations differently. I look at say you know even the police differently. I get nervous when I see police where some mm. other where white folks might get excited and say, oh good, you know this safety here i get a little nervous so i think like when peter says to the enslaved people in chapter two and he says um you know he says in verse 19 that you might be suffering unjustly he acknowledges that it's unjust but he still encourages them not to retaliate but to be like jesus so for me that's like you know young people we tell them to keep their hands on the wheel when the police come because we don't we don't want this to escalate for no good reason. Yeah. And uh, even though we don't have control, it could still be unjust. Mm-hmm. But you do what you can to keep the situation um, or to keep yourself clean of any uh, sure. uh, wrongdoing. So I think that's coming through in the letter as well. It's like to keep your reputation right, even if the society is not right, this is how you behave. Yeah. yeah. It is. I, I, I know my audience and I know that it, it may be difficult for some of us to hear. Mm-hmm. what you have just said i have known enough friends who whom i respect who have had to tell me that they've experienced that or have told me that they tell their kids okay when you're driving here's what that goes and even though it's outside my experience i i am i am led to trust that they're not all crazy (laughs) yeah yeah and they're not all making up um making up this kinds of things yeah. As we as we go through this section here, right there near mm-hmm. the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter mm-hmm. three, mm-hmm. Peter is talking it to these folks. He mm-hmm. then kind of switches gears mm-hmm. and addresses at the most basic in terms of the social location, kind of what we what this phrase, mm-hmm. this helpful phrase that right. you just mentioned. Yeah. In terms of social location at the most basic unit of society, Peter turns and addresses husbands mm-hmm. not a group that often received a lot of uh, family instruction in <laughs> ancient greek right. uh in, in ancient greek um mm-hmm. instructions about how a how a successful house 
was carried on. Usually those right. instructions were given for, uh, for enslaved persons, for mm -hmm. children, and right. for wives. That's right. And Peter does something very strange here and says, oh, hey, husbands, don't fall asleep on me. Uh, can I yeah. ask, what do you make of the fact that Peter rap goes from kind of the, the most marginalized with enslaved persons <laughs> yeah. to, um, to less marginalized you know, wives <laughs> to then, bam, suddenly we're at the head of the household? Yeah, yeah. What, well, what I, is Peter trying to do here? I think that, I mean, that's, that's good. I, I think there is... Um... Uh, you probably you mentioned our friend Lynn Kohick and Ephesians, and she would probably have a lot more to say about the household codes because they are more extensive in, in Ephesians and Colossians. But the, the same point exists that you're right. We don't expect the power person to be addressed the way we expect the powerless to be addressed. That is what makes these household codes more, more Christian. I should say the Christians didn't create the household codes. They, sure. you know, the society inherited them, right? I mean, yeah. Aristotle and people earlier on said, this is the way society should be arranged. So it is something noteworthy. And I'm glad you went there to say, hey, let's talk to the power person in the household and say what should happen. And even when he says in the same way, verse seven, uh, copies verse three, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse one, the same way, submit to your husbands. And then he had already said in two, in chapter two, um, using the language of submission, the idea that if we want to model the way of Jesus, then these husbands need to recognize that their wives are partners, which I think is already um, very different from the mm -hmm. way the rest of society would have operated. So I'm glad you mentioned that. It's, it's, a, it's an important part to, to say, we tend to think, oh, he's just trying to keep women in their place. But no, the idea is women are witnesses, especially if their husbands are not believers. And here we've got these husbands who need to understand that they can't play the power game in their household. Their wives are fellow heirs, joint yeah. heirs of the promises. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, and uh, especially mentioning that word heirs, Mm -hmm. And you, you get into, again, you know, some issues that you, if we have some understanding of what was common practice in uh, ancient Greco-Roman society or even ancient Jewish mm -hmm. society, too. Yeah, yeah. This notion of uh, heir implies mm. inheritance. Yeah, that's right. And so then we get into this great discussion of, you know, OK, how does you know, like how does family stuff get passed on? Right. Well, you know, yeah. sons typically inherited. Daughters were right. typically married, and then there was an economic exchange at the time of their marriage. Yeah, uh, yeah. typically, and so they didn't inherit because, well, that economic exchange had already happened. But the son's yeah. inheritance was generally kind of the prime stuff, right? And so to oh, talk about inheritance like this mm -hmm. and to connect that with women, mm -hmm. oh man, this is our shattering stuff. That is, that's really good. I'm glad you brought that out. I, I was thinking, you know. Uh, I, I, I that's that's powerful. I, I'm encouraged by that. There, the language of inheritance shows up in chapter one when he talks about um, being in this new family. God, you know, as 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 the parent, and and we are now um, inheritor inheritance that's laid up in you know in heaven for us and all of that kind of language. But you make a really good point that there's something um, uh, atypical, right? Not like the rest of society to, to talk about women as inheritors. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. You know, a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. I like that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, let's uh, let me ask, mm -hmm. what is some unique contribution 
yeah. that first Peter makes to the New Testament. It, 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 and if there are one or two that really strike you, we can, we, we've got time to talk about those too. All right. Well, I'll mention briefly, I think you know, one of the things that is unique is even this emphasis on suffering we're talking about, because when we look at like a lot of Pauline letters, suffering might be in the background, or we might think of Paul suffering for the faith because of the risk he took to, to be an evangelist and to travel. Mm -hmm. But we often think of the community dealing with internal issues that have to be corrected, you know, like the first, like in first, second Corinthians and, and maybe even Colossians that there's some philosophy that's creeping in and they have to sure. straighten it out. But here is, this, it's, it's one of the unique contributions of first Peter is that there very much is the internal, external tension, right? There's the outside world and how they view. So it's giving us a glimpse into how Roman society may have viewed these Christians, right? And, uh, and that it wasn't just they were off in the corner doing something by themselves, but they were running into conflict with the rest. So I think that is a somewhat unique contribution of First Peter to highlight the conflict that was emerging between Christians and the broader society. Yeah. The other, other thing, and maybe there's a bunch of them, but the other thing that came to my mind right away was the weird, I say weird because it's a confusing passage in chapter three. Oh, I hope, I was hoping you're going to go oh, there. I was hoping I was, you're going to go there. I was afraid you were going to ask me about <laughs> it. <laughs> but that whatever is going on there, it's given us this sense that something was happening, mm -hmm. um, you know, even post Good Friday um, and maybe uh, pre-Easter, uh, um, at least part of Easter that we know, which is the empty tomb. Um, that something's going on there. And yeah. it's, it's a difficult passage, I'm not going to lie. And, uh, and there's a lot of debate over what's going on there. But I think that's mm -hmm. one of the unique contributions is that something happened in when Jesus um, rose from the dead that wasn't as obvious that we, that we read about at the end of the Gospels, the obvious thing of meaning he physically appeared and, and met with the disciples. Yeah. There's something actually else going on in, the, in a world unseen to us. Mm -hmm. I, so Peter makes a contribution in there that that's really unique in the New Testament. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for folks who are curious, what part of chapter three are you talking about? Well, chapter three, <laughs> 18, first Peter chapter three, that's verses right. 18 and following. You're, you're um, right. I didn't, I didn't, didn't specify, but it's right. That's, it's 18, that's okay. All yeah. the way to the end. Yep. That's all right. Yeah. I, I just I just knew if we didn't bring this up, I was gonna get roasted by somebody. I, like, I can't believe you had this guy on and you didn't ask him about first um, Peter three. No, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. This is this is strange. Like whatever, whatever perspective you take on it, yeah. This is a strange passage, and essentially, you know, like you said. Between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, something yeah. happens. Something happens. And uh, we could leave it at that. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll say a little bit more. I mean, please do. There's, yeah, there's a lot going on. I, I mean, yeah. the basic issue is there's some folks who say, OK, Jesus went, quote unquote, went to hell for us. I've heard right. many evangelistic mm -hmm. messages like that. I've heard people do that, you know, for the youth group that Jesus loved you so much. He went to hell for you. Um, so the idea that Jesus went to the same place as as. Um, any other dead person. And, but sometimes if we say hell, we, we think of that as a place of punishment. So right. like, wait, 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 what do you mean by saying Jesus went to hell? So that's part of the issue there is mm -hmm. where did Jesus go? And are we talking about him going there? And then what did he do there? Right. Yeah. So for some people, okay, he preached to people. So he gave them a chance to hear the guy, the good news right. and, and respond. Or it was people who, who had died way back. Some would say in the days of Noah. Um, so there's, so there's that, all of that. It's like, who, where did he go and who he's talking to, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say 
the NIV translation is actually made, made, I mean, it took some liberties, but it might be helpful at the end of verse 18. It says, he was put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went, made proclamation. So they have said, oh, wait a second. This is actually, that's early Sunday morning. This mm -hmm. is not about Saturday, right? Because if he's made alive, right? Yeah. Um, so the question is, right, when, right, made right. alive, and, and, and then made proclamation, that doesn't necessarily mean an evangelistic speech, and who is he talking to? It says imprisoned spirits, yeah. so there are some who would argue that we're really talking about a very unique group, and I'll just put it simply, uh, uh, imprisoned spirits would be rebellious um, uh, um, celestial beings, yeah. and Jesus proclaims victory to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what some would argue is happening here, that the proclamation is that, you know, I just defeated death in the grave right. and, and, and uh, pronounced victory over the evil one. So that might be happening there. So it's not about dead people. It might be imprisoned spirits, meaning um, celestial beings, or let's say demonic beings, or some, some entity like that. Um, but all that to say is that there's drama in the other world, yeah. right? It's, a, oh, it's yeah. a drama that's not happening on earth per se, but it's happening in the spirit realm mm -hmm. that, that Peter gets at. And he says it like, whoa, this, is, this just adds to his argument about what Jesus did for us. Yeah. yeah. I had not previously connected these verses with mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter two. Mm. But all this discussion that Paul has about, um, about how how we were um living according to the these rulers and principalities and things along yes. those lines yes um there i i believe that there is overlap between that collection of spirits and powers that paul mentions in ephesians 2 with yeah. per, perhaps at least with some of these imprisoned spirits I, uh, that, that, may, uh, that first peter 3 might mention there may be and i think that that's a reality that um uh, more and more scholars are paying attention to um, the, the, this whole notion of the, of the spiritual conflict that that ha that Jesus um, uh, wins, mm -hmm. but that is a reality that affects human beings. You know, yeah. um, so uh, for Christ to have one, I mean, the victory I think it comes clear because at the end Very it true. says yeah. he's gone into the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission mm -hmm. to him. And that's the same language you get in Paul, right? Yeah. Authorities and powers in submission mm -hmm. to him. So yeah, I do think there's overlap there with, with Ephesians and, and even Colossians. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned that section there because that, um, had you had you not mentioned that i was gonna <laughs> i was gonna have to bring it up well you know i i get nervous about it because there's so many thoughts and it's hard to explain because it, it's convoluted i mean even the mm -hmm. days of noah then you got the baptism imagery i mean there's so much that's going on there that it's hard to explain in a short amount of time but i but my encouragement though is to say there's something happening that jesus is um defeating right mm -hmm. there's there's a victory story that's going yeah. on here and it's happening in a spiritual realm yeah i i think i had um i, I had not ever encountered this verse in my uh, in my days uh, growing up in church mm. and uh, then and so like when i got to seminary in that exegesis class <laughs> on first peter and we got to this i at least had the advantage of not having had years to become entrenched in my perspective on this. 
Mm. And so I was, I, I, I feel like maybe by God's grace, I was able to hear, you know, the top two or three options. Yeah. Yeah. All at the same time and, and without emotional attachment kind of way, which ones I thought made the most sense. Yeah. The way that I read this, I think is the way how you presented it, that, yeah. you know, you know, setting aside precise chronology, right. Of when you know, Jesus dies mm -hmm. and when this particular proclamation happens, right. I, if I understood you correctly, I think we're on the same page here. Mm -hmm. Jesus proclaims victory probably doesn't go to preach. Hey, you know, whosoever will come, right. It's, it's not right, an invitation, right, right? It's he's proclaiming victory yeah. over these imprisoned spirits. Yeah. And then that is, that is explicitly spelled out in verse 22. Yeah. 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 Chapter three, yeah. verse 22 there. Where That's right. Yeah. All That's these things. And so at That's the right. bottom line, what we can say then is, that, again, mm -hmm. if I'm understanding you correctly, is mm -hmm. there's a proclamation of victory. Mm -hmm. And by sharing in Christ's suffering, you will also share in that victory. I think that'll preach. That'll preach, man. That's good. Yes, sir. I'm with you on that. All right. Last thing I wanted to ask about, and, sure. and then I'll open it up if there's anything else you thought about. Okay. What is, uh, what is maybe a, a favorite favorite verse of yours, a verse or a collection uh, of verses from first Peter. Uh, that is really hard. You know, it's like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, I I'll say this. I've preached a great deal from chapter four and it's seven to 11. I, I, I preached that because it's, it's this really nice, hopeful passage that he says, you know, the, the, um, end of all things is near he says there, there's something hopeful even though that could be ominous sounding mm -hmm. when you're struggling that's good news you know that the end is coming that there's there's something better on the horizon but in the meantime you know you nurture your your um your horizontal life you you're sober sober and and alert so you can pray and then you nurture this this um i said that was vertical sorry vertical life that you can pray and your horizontal life is is um is characterized by love. You know, you love each other deeply. So I used to teach math and I would say, um, that's life on the hypotenuse of a right triangle. You know, you've got this part, this part, and then you got the part that connects the, the uh, vertical and the horizontal, they call that the hypotenuse. And that's what Christians do. We live in that space where we are nurturing a relationship with God and a, re a relationship with other people. And, and it's not one extreme or the other. We're balancing, we're, you know, we're kind of continuing to make that connection. So I like that passage. And then he elaborates on how do you do this? You know, you pray. That's how you nurture your vertical relationship with God. And love characterizes the horizontal. And love plays itself out in forgiveness, covers a multitude of the sin, plays itself out in service. So I preach that passage a lot. It's one of my favorites. I think right behind it would be chapter five with the emphasis on humility among the, um, the community. So... Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Edwards, this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything else that you would want to mention uh, right mm. here at the end of all things <laughs> as, as, we, as we wrap up? Anything else that you maybe thought of or something else you want to return to just well, real quick? Well, it's, it's kind that you asked me that. I, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I, I won't beat a dead horse, but something that came up earlier in our conversation, you mentioned um, 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 Dr. Keener's work um, conversation about um, uh, uh, in Revelation about Babylon. 
mm-hmm. and about this notion of you know getting into the world systems and stuff that might have been just the conversation you and i are having before yeah. we, we got recorded but peter at the end he talks about babylon and he says, yeah the, there's a mysterious reference to yeah babylon for some reason but, but and i bring that up because it seems like he's in rome and he's making reference to rome as babylon but i'm saying if peter is doing that and you know the writer john of uh, revelation is doing that there's something that babylon symbolizes that is um that the christians might have gotten right early on mm-hmm. that to use that old city of babylon as the as a as a image as a cipher for rome of some sort um that that should capture our imagination something about the way the empire is working and peter's there he's in the midst of it he's greeting you from there but i just i find that just kind of interesting that he doesn't say i'm in rome or the church is in rome but she who is in babylon it's kind of cryptic but it sounds like you know here's this church that's right here in the midst of the empire but we're greeting you you know and encouraging you out there in turkey so I don't know, that just strikes me at the very end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it probably not hard to guess what my libertarian friends would think about that, but uh, <laughs> but well, that is, um, it is interesting. And when you yeah. think about Babylon, you get, you can almost say that, I don't know, there seemed like there's some kind of a, a mixed reception of Babylon. I mean, you have guys like Daniel who are, Daniel mm. isn't tanking, babylon's bureaucracy no he's he's not an inside man he's not a mole i mean he's you know things are operating smoothly and then when you get to revelation babylon is this uh, this horrific satanic monster yeah and it's just it's fascinating to see how both are affirmed in in scripture uncomfortably so for folks who are trying to figure out maybe who they need to vote for (laughs) well well yeah i mean that's a good point i do i do think yeah i mean i'm with you on that there is some ambiguity Mm -hmm. um but 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 babylon either way i mean wherever you come to the conclusion babylon is not the one that sets the agenda though because Mm -hmm. even for daniel he doesn't tank babylon but he's not really of babylon you know he's in it but he's not of it and uh so he's he's still marching to a different drumbeat. So I think that's important for for us. All right, Dr. Edwards, this was a this was a delight. I am oh, glad to make your pleasure. acquaintance. Hopefully, we'll be able to run into each other again. Maybe collaborate on some of the projects in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much, sir. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks.